Hi, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. It's the fourth Sunday in Lent in the church calendar, and so we're looking at some lessons today that are that are interesting to say the least, and there's so much in them that it's really difficult to kind of get your head around it and say, all right, what is it that I want to pull out of these? Because any one of the three lessons and the psalm could be preached today. So what I'm trying to do is pull all this together in sort of one sort of coherent whole. We'll see if I'm able to manage that or not. So the lessons are Psalm 23, and everybody should know the 23rd Psalm. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the still water. He restores my soul and <clears throat> leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. <clears throat> you spread a table before me in the presence of those who trouble me, or mine enemies, and have anointed my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right now, in the midst of the situation we're in with the coronavirus and uh, are all over the world right now. Could there be anything greater that God could do than to lead you and lie you down in green pastures, lead you beside still waters, and restore your soul? Nothing greater in my mind that he could do at this moment in time would be to, to bring us to a place of quiet, to bring us to a place of peace, and to be with him, and allow him in the midst of panic and fear and everything else we might be feeling right now, all the uncertainty and everything else it would be. What a wonderful thing to be still before the living God and allow him to restore your soul. But that's not what I'm going to preach on. <laughs> the first lesson, the Old Testament lesson, is when the Lord calls Samuel to go to Bethlehem because he's rejected Saul, who Samuel had previously anointed as king, at God's direction, I might add. <laughs> He's rejected him. God has rejected Saul as the head of his people because he wasn't obedient. He was not willing to do as the Lord instructed him to do. And so the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, go to Bethlehem and see a man there named Jesse. And I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel initially has fear. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. So his faith in doing what God told him to do wasn't complete. God had to give him another way around that. Take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do and you should appoint for me whom I declare to you. So Samuel did that. So the Lord gave him an out, right? I mean, he said, I'm afraid to go and do this in the same way that Moses was afraid to go and speak to the people in Egypt. And so he gives him an out in the same way that he gave Moses an out. If you take this staff and do these three things, is what he told Moses, then the people will believe you. And so he saw first, Moses did, and he believed, and then he went to the Israelites in Egypt. And while he was there, he did those signs and authenticated himself. Here, Samuel is afraid to go. He's afraid of being kill, killed by Saul if, if Saul finds out that he, he Samuel, is on the mission to anoint another king. He says, he'll kill me. And so God gives him a way out. He gives him a, an alibi, an excuse. Um, so he does. 
he goes and and he looks at the sons of Jesse. He sees the oldest and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, nope, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then he brought seven more, or not seven more, but seven total before Samuel. And every one of them, God says, no, 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 no. So Samuel is now there and he's got to have some concern that God said, among his sons, I've chosen one who will be my king. But he's rejected all seven of them. So Samuel says, is there another one? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. And so he brings in this ruddy young man with beautiful eyes who is handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. The one that even his father didn't choose. The one his father didn't even bother to bring in because he was convinced it would have been one of the others. And the other one's out there. He's the starry-eyed dreamer in the fields with the sheep. But he was the one God chose because God always chooses a shepherd, right? So he then is anointed, but it's about 20 more years before David becomes king. And a lot has to happen in that interim period. Saul tries to kill him much of that time. So it, it's a long journey from anointing to being in the role God chose him for. But if, if you're somebody out there who, who hears this and is always seemingly overlooked and passed over for a promotion, that people don't seem to take notice of you, that they don't even, aren't even aware that you're there, you're in really good company because you're in the company with David. More than that, I believe you're in the company with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the gospel lesson today. And Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 to 14, says we're to be imitators of God. We're to put aside all sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and filthiness or foolish talk and crude joking. And he says, put on Christ. Spend your life seeking after the things God says seek after and seek after worship and become like him. And he says that, that we've got to wake up. We've got to choose that which is good and right and true and discern what's pleasing to the Lord and then move in that direction. Desire the same things God desires. And he ends that by saying that um, don't take part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose those things. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And so Paul is calling us to life. We're in the midst of everything that wants to tell us we're in the midst of death and being pushed into death. But Paul calls us to life in Christ. And so we're called not just to believe, but to act on that belief. And so Samuel had to believe the Lord to, that he had indeed heard from him and that he would, if he did what he said, then he would see and anoint the next king. He had to believe it, but he had to act on it. He had to go. 
He had to go to Jesse's house and he had to ask to see the sons of Jesse. And even when it looked like that whole thing was exhausted, he had to say, do you have any more? Because the Lord told me one of them was. So it, it requires action. We, we sometimes can act like that we don't have to act on the faith that we have. And, and so this is a call to action. But, it, but it's a call to faith first. It's a call to know. It's a call to see and it's a call to hear, but it's a call to respond ultimately. And so that's where it all comes together in the gospel. The gospel lesson today is John 9, the first 38 verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'm going to talk through it, but not going to read the whole thing to you. Could. The last time that I read this in public was um, in Pauley's Island, South Carolina, at a church there uh, where I served. And at the time, I was a deacon. And one of the jobs of a deacon in the Anglican tradition is, is that the gospel reading is set aside for the deacon to read. So I, I was so excited when I saw that this was the passage that I was going to have to read because I, I believe there's a huge amount of humor in this lesson, actually. And so I was excited to read it, and, and I got up and I read it, and it was great because people laughed in all the right places. So I conveyed what I intended to convey, and then it suddenly occurred to me, that may not be how the preacher wanted me to read that. He may have wanted me to read it a little differently. He may have wanted me to emphasize other things. So I was panicked. Fortunately, he didn't get mad at me about that. But, but this whole thing is about basically four things. It's about seeing. It's about knowing. It's about believing. And then it's about action. So as we go through it, I, I would encourage you to read it. In fact, that the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to read it. So we talk about seeing. So in the passage, what it's about is they come along and they run into a man. The disciples and Jesus do. And the man was blind from birth. And we find out later that he's over 40 years old. Well, when they see him, the disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? You see, I've said this before. I've said it many times. In fact, the, the problem with our faith is it's not truly formed. We have a default theology that lives in all of us, and all of us believe at some level if something's wrong, if something's not the way it ought to be in our lives, then it must be sin that's doing that. And, and especially if we have a problem in our lives that persists over time, we begin to cast about for blame. We begin to cast about for an explanation of the situation. It's what's going on in Job's life. Job's uh, friends come and they diagnose the problem. Job, there must be something wrong. Everything that went before that said everything was good. You, you were prospering. Your family was wonderful. Everything was great. And now you're struggling and every single area of life has fallen apart. So there must be some sin there. And Job rightfully responds with, you're wrong. There's not anything wrong. I have not sinned, but he goes to the other side of that theology, which is to say, this shouldn't have happened to me because there's no sin in my life. So he believes the same thing they do, 
that the situation, the problems that people have, have to do with sin. They believe Job must have sinned. Job says, no, I haven't sinned, therefore this shouldn't have happened to me. We know, if we read the first chapter of the book of Job, that it has nothing to do with sin. Nothing at all. Satan, after God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like Job. There's nobody like him on the earth. Satan says, well, if you took something away from him, as much as you've given him, who wouldn't love you? But if you take something away, he'll curse you. And so throughout the book, what we're doing is, is trying to resolve that dilemma of bad theology. And how does God resolve it at the end of the day in Job? Well, he appears to Job and he speaks to him. And he asks him a series of questions that have absolutely nothing to do with Job's central question, is, which is, why did this happen to me? And God says, were you there when I did all these things at the creation of the earth? Can you understand everything else in the world? And I believe that at the end of the day, what God's saying is, is that Job, the only way to understand your situation is in light of everything that has come before it, and only I know all those things. Even angels don't know those things because what they don't know is why. They don't understand the purpose of all things. But it was like there was a, an under-construction sign around Job's life for that period of time as God brought him from that place of, of certain kind of faith into a very vastly different kind of faith. Because he says, I now no longer know I've seen and I've heard. It's important. And so here they see this man. He's born blind. He's over 40 years old, and the disciples want to know why did this happen? Was it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Well, how could he possibly have sinned prior to his birth? That's an interesting thought. But it was, was it his parents then? And Jesus says, no, it hadn't anything to do with sin. It's the works of God might be displayed in him. This man's blindness had a purpose. Its purpose would be revealed and realized this very day. And the purpose was to display the works of God in him. What does that mean? It means that his sight was restored by Jesus. The work of God was to restore this man's sight. So Jesus says the things that he's going to say, and then he goes and spits on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. You don't anoint things with mud. You anoint them with oil. Jesus, however, here anoints them with mud. If you're the blind guy, this is a little weird, to say the least, that Jesus makes mud, a guy you've obviously never seen, never met, makes mud, puts it on your eyes, and then says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he has to go into Jerusalem to do this. So he, he goes, and it's a distance from where he is to Siloam. In fact, it's a greater distance than you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath. So the man went and he washed and he came back and he could see. And the neighbors and those who had been seen him before as a beggar were then saying, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Well, it's a distance to Siloam, but it didn't take all day to get there and back. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Well, he was just here a little while ago. And he walked to the pool of Siloam and came back. But did he used to sit and beg? He can't beg anymore. It's not allowed. 
Judaism doesn't allow able-bodied people to beg. He could beg while he was a blind man, but he can't beg anymore. He's a different man. He's not only a man who sees, he's a man who now has new capabilities and a new life in front of him. He's not any longer the man who used to sit and beg. He's now the man who does whatever it is he's going to do. And so some people said it is he, and others said no, but he's like him. It, it was such a dramatic thing to see this guy walking in that even people who saw him a little while before are not sure if it's that guy or sort of an imposter. We see that same thing, right, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The disciples aren't sure. Mary Magdalene is not sure until he says her name. And nobody could have said her name like Jesus could say her name. And so she knows then, Rabboni falls at his feet and does what? Worships him. So people aren't sure. So the man kept saying, kept saying is what it said, by the way. It doesn't just say, so the man said once. No, no, no. He kept saying, I am the man. Over and over, he has to keep saying, I'm the man, because nobody believes this. Because who's ever seen a man born blind healed? It can't be him, is what everybody says. And he has to keep saying, I am the man. And they said to him, then how are your eyes open? And the answer, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? Really? You're asking the guy who was blind a little while ago where Jesus is. He's never seen him. He said, I don't know. He uses that word, no. So they took this man and they brought him to the Pharisees. And then we get this ominous note. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. When Jesus spit into the mud and then did something, or into the dirt, and then did something with it and made the mud. Do you hear that word, made? That's a sin. He made something. Then he put it on this guy's eyes. And now... He could have done nothing after that and said, this will be okay tomorrow. But he said, no, go, walk further than you're allowed to walk. Go to Siloam and come back and wash your eyes. He told him to commit two sins, to walk further than he was supposed to walk and then to do the work of washing. And so the Pharisees then said, how'd you get your sight back? And he said, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. The Pharisees said, here is their summary judgment. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Because Jesus made mud, he told the man to go and he told the man to wash. Therefore, whatever he did doesn't make any difference because he didn't keep the Sabbath. Well, Jesus' argument to this, he's not going to make it this day, is yes, I did, because it's allowed under the restrictions of Sabbath to, if a horse, even your neighbor's horse, is caught in a ditch, it's not considered work, it's considered righteousness to take that horse out of a ditch and to save the horse. And so he's making a statement here by doing this that this man is way more important than that. Their suggestion is essentially, well, he could have waited till tomorrow. If he had waited till tomorrow, everything would have been fine. We would have believed in him. Well, that's a lie. They're more concerned about the Sabbath than they are about man. 
So we're moving into this realm of seeing and knowing. They saw, whether they're seeing it now by this man's witness or seeing it physically, they're seeing something. But what they're doing badly is knowing something. Will Rogers once said, it ain't what we don't know that gives us trouble. It's what we know that ain't so. It's not what we know that gives us trouble. It's what we know that ain't so that gives us trouble. And Will Rogers is right, and he was right in this particular instance. There was one thing they, the Pharisees, knew, and that is they knew good and well Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, that he was not the Messiah. They had formed that opinion very early on because he would do things like this, where he would cause somebody to break a Sabbath law in order to receive healing. And so they've already determined he's not Messiah. And so they're looking and seeing things, but they're missing the forest for the trees. John's gospel is known as the book of signs. And John gives us a group of signs in there. And in those signs, at the end of the gospel, well, not quite the end, what we believe was the original end, and then an appendix, chapter 21 was added to it. John says this, he said, now Jesus did many other signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You can see something and not understand it because of something you know so well that you can't get over what you know and move into a new realm of knowledge. That's Thomas Kuhn called that a paradigm shift that something finally becomes so apparent that you shift the way you think about everything. Paul would call it his moment on the road to Damascus. What did God do? He took away his sight. He took away everything he knew in order that he could give him back sight in the same way he heals this man so that he can know Jesus is the Son of God. And the problem was Paul had already determined that he wasn't. And that's the problem of the Pharisees. The barrier to knowledge here is a faith that's wrong. And it's a faith in the belief that Jesus is not the Messiah. And so it becomes this humorous back and forth then with this man. Because what they decided to do was, well, this guy doesn't know anything. I don't care who he is. Because he asked him, who do, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes after they said he was a sinner, he said, he's a prophet. And then the people it says, did not believe he had been blind and had received his sight. How could you possibly not believe that? You grew up in the same village. You watched this guy for 40 years and you don't believe that he's that guy. It's because you know it can't be him because he sees that. So what did they do? They called his parents and they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. That seems like a pretty weird answer until you get the parenthetical John gives after that, which is to say that the Pharisees had already determined they were going to drive the, the anybody who confessed Jesus the Christ was to be put out of the synagogue. You're going to be put out of the community, completely kicked out. 
So they parsed their words very carefully, and they said, here are the things that we know, comma, that won't get us into trouble. But this other thing, we don't know because we can't know that. They're afraid of peer pressure. They're afraid that if we know something that the community has already determined is wrong and untrue, then we can't say that out loud. You hearing what I'm saying here? You hearing today? People won't say things. They won't believe. They, they will not step out and believe. They will not confess their faith because they fear peer pressure. They fear people will look down on them. They'll think they're unintelligent. They will kick them out of polite society. In other words, he's that lunatic, that nutcase. Just push him to the side. So it's the same thing that's going on here. And so for the second time, they call the man back and they ask him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus. He looks and he says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I think we covered that ground. And so his response is, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Huh? Sorry. You, you knew good and well where he came from. Everybody knew where he came from. And the man answered, why well, this amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began. Has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what he's saying there is, look at the scriptures. See if you can find an instance of the prophets or Moses or anybody opening the eyes of a man born blind. And you can't find it there, but that this man just did it. You know it. That's the reason you're asking me these questions. And yet you can't believe. You believe all the stuff that you said and they didn't do the things to authenticate themselves that Jesus has done this day. And yet all you know about him is he's a sinner. And they cast him out. But not before they said these lovely parting words. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us. Yep. Yep, he would. He can teach them because he knows. He knows what they don't know. And they don't know what he knows because they refuse to give up what they already know in order to move forward. There's a philosopher in the late 19th century named William James. And William James wrote about this very issue. The, the study of knowledge and how we know things in philosophy is called epistemology. And um, William James gave a paper in a lecture called The Will to Believe. And, and what his argument was is this, is, is that access to evidence for whether or not certain beliefs are true depends crucially upon first adopting those beliefs without evidence. In other words, I'm going to believe, and then because I believe, that I have access to evidence that you don't have access to. That flew in the face of another form of philosophy called evidentialism, which is you're not supposed to believe anything for which you have no concrete evidence. 
Everybody in this scene today had concrete evidence. Jesus provided it. It's part of the reason he came, was to prove. And he gave evidence that they wouldn't believe. They couldn't believe. They couldn't see what the sign pointed to because they had already convinced themselves that Jesus was not the Messiah. It's, you know, a lot of people know that I love reading rabbinic teaching and I love listening to rabbinic teaching. And they asked me why, since they don't believe in Jesus. And, and I've told them many times, that doesn't mean that God's not trying to get them to believe in Jesus. And so he gives them, in some cases, great insight. But their eyes are closed to that option. So if you rule out that in the beginning, then you're not going to see it no matter what you see. And so God has to take extraordinary measures in order to allow you to see. And again, ask Paul. So here in this situation, this man sees, he knows, but he's got to make one more step. Because he, all he said so far is he's a prophet. So then what happens is, after they cast him out, Jesus heard that and then found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Just like the woman at the well. Jesus says, I'm him. Just like you said a minute ago, I'm the man. I'm telling you now, I'm the man. And that's what it took. He said, Lord, I believe. I believe not that you're the man who healed me. Because I know that. I believe you're more than that. And that's where knowing becomes a barrier. Because knowing then can become a barrier to believe. We're always looking for further evidence and further evidence and further evidence. And he's already got his evidence. And it's enough for him to say, Lord, I believe. What more evidence are you looking for in your own life? What is it that, that is lacking? And I'm not asking you that to say, ask God to give it to you. What I'm asking you for is exactly the opposite of that. What if he never gave you that? Do you have enough evidence to believe? And if so, then you have enough evidence to act in spite of not receiving whatever it is that you're asking him for, or hoping for, or longing for in your own life to believe in it. Nope. Begin with belief. Begin with belief. And then seek after knowing. Seek after understanding. Seek after truth. Seek after him. That's the response. To seek after him and to stand in that faith. To stand in that belief. But you got to act. And so how does the man here prove that he believes? The last four words of this reading are, and he worshiped. You don't worship human beings. You worship God. They had told him before, give glory to God. But this man's a sinner. Give glory to God meant reject him. He worshiped him. He worshiped Jesus. He had stood in his faith. He had said, I know what I know. I will not have that taken away from me through peer pressure or anything else. You people didn't do anything for me the last 40 years. 
And now you're asking me to reject the man that healed me because of you. Good luck with that. He was willing to accept being cast out because he knew more than they did. He knew a truth they'll never know unless God does an intervention in their lives. This man, this day, like that woman at the well, received the greatest gift you could possibly receive. In her case, though, it restored her to fellowship with the community. In his case, it cost him fellowship with his community. But he has fellowship with the saints in life. He had fellowship when the church was formed. He surely was a shining light in the early church. They surely pointed to this guy. And he was there worshiping, I guarantee it. So your first act, worship, adoration. And the next is faith, seeking, understanding, always wanting to know more. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green. I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. I look forward to seeing you soon.